Guru Nation, welcome to episode 443 of Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. In this episode, we talk about uh, site selection visits from the perspective of a site. So what are those CRAs that are coming to your site? What are they actually looking for? What boxes do they have to check on their report? What are some of the things that you maybe are not thinking about, but they're looking for? This is what this episode's about. So definitely check it out. If you're a site, if you're someone thinking of starting a site, or if you're someone trying to get into the industry, I mean, this is important to know. You gotta know both sides of it, both sponsor and CRO side and the site side of things. Uh, so hopefully you enjoy this one. It's a quick one, but there, it's, it, there's a lot of content in here. Links in the show notes to everything, guys. The Patreon channel, $5 a month. We have a monthly mastermind group. The group is growing strong. I'm really happy with the progress we've been making. We've already had people from that group, from that mastermind publish books. We've had people start YouTube channels. We've had people doing podcasts, all kinds just growing your opportunities using social media, whether you are somebody looking to uh, level up your career or somebody looking to level up your business. It really doesn't matter. Your brand is your brand. And this is what the Patreon is for. So check that out. Patreon.com slash Check out the CRA Academy and the CRC Academy links in the show notes. Uh, if you need help getting studies for your site or you want to start a site, text me 949-415-6256. And with that being said, let's get into these site selection visits, right? Have a good one. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Site Owner Academy, as well as a podcast episode and a video on YouTube. Make sure that you're on all those things, okay? And uh, we're going to, after this presentation, we're going to go back to the Site Owner Academy and discuss Q&A with, privately, not on, not on the air, not recording. So, because that's what we do in the Site Owner Academy. If you're interested, let me know. Today, Chris, we're doing one on site specifics during clinical research site selection visits. So basically, what sites should know about site selection visits, what to expect, things like that. This is for the more research naive sites maybe that never had a site selection visit, or maybe you're an employee that's uh, about to experience your first site selection visit at a company. Uh, that's a good so one. We have a good we've, topic. We've done this before, but it's been a while since we've done this. Yeah, yeah. We've probably done just about everything, but uh, it's always good to go back. Yep. So I haven't looked at these slides, so I don't know. Um, but uh, we can move on to the slides and see how Carlos did with the slides. So you want to do this first one? First impressions matter. This is all you. Uh, sure. First impressions matter. And that's <laughs> absolutely correct. You only make a first impression one time. Um, most sites will struggle to get a sponsor's attention and secure a site selection visit. Um, absolutely. So it takes a lot of work to get to the point of site selection visit. And once you are at that point, it's your study to lose. You've essentially been awarded the study, not entirely, but essentially, if you've made it to the site selection visit. So there's a lot of steps that get you to that point. Um, right. The process, the, the process of getting an SSV is complicated because sites must first secure study leads, submit feasibility surveys, negotiate a budget. So negotiating a budget, that's not exactly correct. You're not doing that prior to the site selection visit. 
um, submit all necessary essential documents. Sometimes that's the case, but usually not as well before the site selection visit. Um, meet pre-selection requirements, and that's true too. So uh, two of these bullet points are a little misleading, I think. Um, but the rest of that's mm -hmm. absolutely correct. Uh, sponsors carefully choose which sites to send monitors for SIVs. If you're getting an SIV, you are very likely to be awarded the study. Um, no, if you have an SIV, you've already been awarded the study. Uh, again, that's a little Basically. confusing too. So, uh, uh, Carlos was a little off this week on this one so far. Um, <laughs> yeah, we need it. We need to tell him. Sponsors carefully choose which sites to send monitors for SSVs. He should have put. If you are getting an SSV, you are very likely to be awarded the study. So he, that's Correct. a typo on the bottom bullet point. Because SIV, Correct. as you know, you've already been awarded the study. Yep, so Carlos, 0 for 1 so far on the slides. 0 for 1 on the slides. Yeah, but the concept, one, the, the concepts and the heart is still there with Carlos. So yeah, two the, we'll give him a two, pass. Two of the bullet Two of the bullet points would would um, be a little off. Those are more in regards to the SIV. So he's just he's combining the two on right. the slide. Basically, combining startup startup events. Yes. Uh, so you, time essentially for SIV. Yeah, time, time, time is all we got, guys. Okay, monitors must take a site's availability into consideration. If the site seems too busy. The monitor might not recommend the site. This is true. Um, if they're also the opposite is true. If the site seems not to be too busy, it's kind of a red flag. So it's a good balance in between. One of the ways monitors gauge how busy the site might be is by observing the number of patients that are present, maybe in the waiting room or just in the office that they can observe during site selection visits. Uh, small sites that look busy or have limited space might not be able to handle more patients from a new study. Uh, alternatively, the site might not seem so busy when the site is large and has many rooms for infusion. And there's just something weird about seeing an empty uh, waiting room. And this is something you and I are doing. We're working on getting a doctor in one of our sites who's going to be yep. full-time private practice. And for this exact reason, right? We even mentioned it to him. It's going to present really well for site selection visits. Yep, that's a big part of it. And in addition to just easier to recruit patients if you have, if you're aligned with some sort of practice. <clears throat> right. All right, next slide. Uh, very good. Next slide. Space for studies. I like this uh, picture of this guy. That's Chris working in this uh, old office before we upgraded. Uh, the it's a guy in a cardboard box, looks like. <laughs> or something. Uh, but basically, the size of the research site and number of rooms available can influence the outcome of the SSV. Uh, even the size of the monitoring room can impact the SSV. Monitors l would like to know that they have private space when they go monitor. And uh, having a lack of space can even pose privacy concerns for monitors and for patients. Uh, monitors will make sure that the site also has space for regulatory binders, lab kits, study supplies, shipping boxes. There's a lot of under-discussed space requirements. Uh, oh, absolutely. For sites. I mean, what are? I mean, can you expand on this thought? Well, no. I mean, uh, Carlos did a good job listing the items that do take up space, but 
it doesn't really convey how much space these items really take up. So if you're doing, say, five studies, that's a lot of a lot of things to store. So I would say the boxes on average are what about the at least the ones with the frozen with the the dry yeah. ice. I would say they're like two, two cubic feet. No, I mean they're pretty big. Yeah, they're big. Um, like if you put them from floor to you know they'll come up to your to your knees at least if not past your knees and then kind of be as about as wide as uh or wider than a human so these are big right. boxes i mean yes you know these and shooting, you have to store many of them things. many for each yes. study you're storing many and then the lab kits and then if you again if you have five studies and you're storing paper docs um that's a lot of binders so yeah it, you're gonna right. use, utilize a lot of space yeah, and uh, that's not to mention the, um, you know, that's just like the combo boxes, the lab kits, uh, they'll send the drug, you need space for the drug. There's a lot yep. All of that. that goes into this. All of that. This is actually yep. a, like a big problem in the industry. And uh, sites, when they're brand new, they kind of underestimate just how much stuff how they're going to be sent for one study. Yep. Right? Right. Yep, absolutely. Uh, okay, then, IP. Or go ahead, what, what you were going to say. Well, I was just going to say there's additional equipment space needed too. I mean, you have centrifuges, you have freezers and refrigerators, uh, storage boxes for the drug, storage containers. So, yeah, lots of space needed. Yep. Okay, sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. So there's a lot. I mean, we, we have a tour on our – we have a site tour on our blog, theclinicaltrialsguru.com. There's a tab that says uh, open clinic, get equipment. On there, there's a tour of Chris and I walking through one of our sites. So you can get an idea of like kind of what you're going to get. Um, investigational product, very important. Okay. Uh, sites that make sure that, sites must make sure that the investigational product is stored and secured appropriately. This means it's double locked temperature controlled, restricted access. Uh, you're trying to avoid temperature excursions. You're trying to avoid people who are not authorized to be in there, to be in there and possibly mess with the IP. Um, mm -hmm. So limited, there needs to be SOPs on this. There needs to be SOPs on the restricted access, on the double locked. There needs to be SOPs on who's dispensing, who's on the delegation log, who's allowed to get into the IP room etc. Uh, and also, IP takes up a lot of space. Another, another thing to consider, the investigational product space itself, whether they are blister packs, pill bottles, devices, which take even more space, biologics, you know, you need to think of how you're going to secure this. And you, some of them need to be ambient. Some of them need to be refrigerated. So then you need to have refrigerated space. Uh, so there's, there's a lot to consider here as well. And this is something that the monitor is going to be looking at. One of the first things they're going to look at when they tour your site at a site selection visit. Besides mm -hmm. having enough space, is, is, is an appropriate space what you have? So securing the investigational product uh, they're going to look at the drug storage area for sure. Uh, this is what monitors are trained to do for the site selection visits. Uh, any yep, other follow slide? those checkboxes. 
Yeah, there's one more, I think. Might be two more. Equipment calibration. Everyone's favorite. Uh, monitors will look at this also. Okay, they may even ask you for a log of your most recent calibrations of the equipments. Any vendor, or I shouldn't say any, any reputable vendor that comes to calibrate your equipment not only puts stickers on the equipment, but needs to provide you with a log or an itinerary or something in regards to what was calibrated, specifically which equipment. Uh, because just putting mm -hmm. a just putting a sticker on the equipment doesn't is it's not going to cut it. You know, the monitor is going to look for uh, the, well, the, the calibration logs. Some monitors are okay with just stickers, but yes, they're supposed to collect a log, and most do, but not all. Right, but wouldn't it be better to prepare them for the worst? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I'm sure they're supposed to collect logs. I'm just thinking, you know, my experience, some monitors are a little bit lazy, so they don't bother. But, well, yep. you know what happens in those cases when the monitors don't do it? Uh, they'll request it later because they submit well, their that report. Does sure. Yeah, they'll submit their report. Maybe they forgot. And then the uh, their lead CRA is going to say, or someone from Trial Master File is going to say, hey, uh, we need the logs, the calibration log. And so like a mm -hmm. few days later, maybe, or maybe even a week later, they'll call the site and ask them, hey, you know, sure. I, I forgot to collect the calibration log. But you're right. It, they don't, you're not guaranteed that they're going to ask you for the calibration log, but they are going to look, and it is a box on their site selection visit report to check the calibration of the equipment. Mm -hmm. So if you're a new site, or a new employee at a site, you need to make sure that this is there. And if your vendor is not providing you a log, uh, I suggest you request one from them. I mean, they, yep. it's it's one thing. A sticker doesn't prove anything, right? That's right. Having having a sticker on equipment doesn't prove <laughs> doesn't prove much. You will definitely want the the certificate, the uh, log. That's right. right. And then what kind of equipment so, must be calibrated? I mean, literally everything, right? Like, what's your rule for what gets calibrated and what doesn't? If it's used in research, it better be calibrated. If it's like anything right. mechanical in any way. So somebody asked, you know, what about the clock that we keep in the laboratory? Like where we record no. what time we drew blood, what time we checked vitals. And that was my initial answer was no. But then they ask, well, how do we know that the time is uh, correct? Maybe the Accurate. clock is off. Well, because you, you're not utilizing a nuclear clock, right? So that would need to be calibrated, I would assume. But any clock, you can change the time on it. So since you have that capability of changing the time, it could always be wrong, right? When you do the Pacific, uh, well, not Pacific, when you do daylight time, you have yeah, to change the clock day. anyhow. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have to change the clock twice a year. So... It's not good. I think they just accept that it's not going to be exact, but it it more boils down to are you using the same clock for the same purpose each time? I would say that's more important. For example, every time you take blood pressure, if there's a time reading, I would say it's more important that you're using the same clock opposed to different clocks. It's like a rater, right? Where you're getting the same bias right. each time or the same the same 
whatever you would want to call it, bias is what's coming to mind for me, but um, where the clock will always read the same, right? Yeah, consistency. Yeah, there you go. Raider consistency. Same with the clock. Clock consistency. If it's off by five minutes, your clock's off by five minutes. If you're using the same one each time, it doesn't matter. Yeah, see, I guess, was it nuclear clock? I mean, the one, you know, those digital ones, I think they're called something else, but maybe they're called nuclear clocks uh, or universal clock or something like that. But basically those, uh, it's good to have those in your lab or wherever you're drawing blood. Um, and they sell them like at McKesson. You can buy them through McKesson or you can get them at Staples. Uh, I mean, you, you can get them anywhere. Uh, to be on the safe side, you should just calibrate the clocks too, in my opinion. So I would definitely agree with that and say a phase one study in which the PK sampling and the timing of it's very important. Um, I don't know how much of a big deal it is in a phase two or three study. I've never seen anybody make an issue with it. And I can't really think of outside of maybe. I I mean, it's it's important to Alcoa. In what regard? Yeah. I've had a monitor ask a long time ago, uh, do you cal- do you guys calibrate your clocks? And I said yes, uh, because I <laughs> I better say yes. But since then, we've been uh, since then we've been doing it because what if the FDA comes in and looks? You know, you'd rather have it than not. Sure. That's my that's my uh, argument. There is you rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Okay. Well, uh, and I, that word, see. the term escapes me. So we go to the next slide. I'll look at what the, uni- if I think it's a universal clock or a nuclear I clock. I can't th- remember what they were called. Medical, basically still, medical clocks. I still think this is just my opinion that the fact that you, the, as the individual, a human being at the site can change the time on the clock. I think that negates calibration, right? Cause how do you know that this hasn't been touched by a human? Yeah, how do you know? The fact that it's simple to change the time. That's it. There's no more slides. Relatively simple, yeah. I think these wall clocks, uh, some of these hospital wall clocks, are, I think they're wireless, so they connect with um, the Wi Fi. Mm -hmm. And you know how your phone is always accurate with the time because it's connected to GPS? I think some of these are the the same. Uh, See, that would make more uh, sense in terms in terms of calibration. There's no calibration necessary. It's just a matter right. of confirming that it's the correct time. But right, right. that would make more sense. Yeah, just something for sites to think about. I mean, you never know. And if the FDA comes in, you'd rather have it than not have it. In my opinion. Yeah. All right. Uh, that is? That's all the slides? Wow. Yep. What a... Uh, uh short but sweet uh and i guess we could stop recording but thanks everyone for watching and listening so hey everybody thank you very much for listening to another episode of random musings from the clinical trials guru again if you haven't already make sure you subscribe to this podcast make sure you leave a review if you could be so kind please uh and also go to the clinical trials if you're interested in learning more about 
who I am, who some of my guests are. Uh, you can have access to some of my YouTube videos. Uh, I do a lot of videos about clinical research. So go to theclinicaltrialsguru.com and you can also call or text me anytime, 949-415-6256. Also follow me on any social media platform. It's Dan Svera. And you can also email me if you'd like, dan at theclinicaltrialsguru.com. Thank you very much.